Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, Nathan. Hey, Martha. How are you? Great. How are you doing? Old friend. Nathan Mervold is a true lifelong learner. His interests range from physics, technology, dinosaurs, photography, food, the list goes on and on. Nathan, who enrolled in college at the age of 14, was once the chief strategist and chief technology officer at Microsoft. And Bill Gates has been quoted as saying, quote, I don't know anyone I would say is smarter than Nathan, unquote. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Nathan over the years. A true lover of food, he's been on my television show to demonstrate sous vide salmon, and I visited him at his impressive laboratory. Nathan, who is an amazing photographer, has just released his latest book featuring images of food like you've never seen before. Joining me to catch up, talk about his new book and his other book projects, and what's happening at his laboratory is Nathan Mervold. Welcome to my podcast, Nathan. It's so nice to see you. We're on Zoom, so I'm seeing you, but uh-huh. only an image of you. I'd much rather if I were there in your laboratory with you, because that is a fascinating place. You built it when? Uh, well, we built the first version about uh, 10 years ago, uh, and then at some point we wound up moving to a bigger facility, so that was maybe five years ago. So I haven't seen your new one. No, the new one's, the new one's much cooler, even. <laughs> It was very cool, the first one. I still have machinery that you encouraged me to buy sitting around in my <laughs> in my little laboratories. Oh my gosh, it's so much fun. And uh, but uh, so you're you're continuing in what is your quest? What is your quest with this amazing photography and food investigation that you're doing? What what are you looking for? You know, our, our general idea is to look at food and look at recipes in a different way than anyone has done before. Uh, you know, we all see food a couple times a day because we get hungry and so we eat. Uh, but do you really look at it? And when we do look at it, 
we're constrained by the fact that, A, we don't have that much time, but we also can only see things of a certain size well. You know, if it's really, really tiny, you're not going to be able to appreciate it. If it happens too quickly or even too slowly, you don't necessarily see it. So photography gives us a way of showing people food, uh, familiar food items, but showing it to them in a very unfamiliar way. And I think that's kind of cool. And these books, by the way, are monumental books. These are really extraordinary books. Your first book was five volumes, and it was uh, the history and fundamentals, the ingredients, the techniques and equipment, the recipes, one and the recipes two, five books in a huge slipcase yep. made of, what was it made out of? Plexiglass that? for the first one. Plexiglass, yes. Since then, we've moved to stainless steel slipcases. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then don't drop them on your foot, by the way. Don't, please. But they are, they're extraordinary. And Nathan does a lot of the photography himself. Now, have you always loved taking pictures? Yeah, since I was nine years old, which is also the time I got serious about cooking. Uh, when I was nine, I decided I was going to cook Thanksgiving dinner all by myself. And I went to the library and got all these books and read them. And I made Thanksgiving dinner, by God. Do you remember the menu? Yes, I do. Um, yeah, I did a, a turkey, of course, and had a bunch of techniques to try to get the turkey to look perfect. And it looked pretty good. The funniest part is I'd found a cookbook called the Pyromaniacs Cookbook, which was all about setting things on fire, uh, serving at flambe, which to a nine-year-old boy, the idea of setting dinner on fire at the table was just so cool. So, of course, I had a flambe thing. I think I had flambeed sweet potatoes. Yum. Yeah, burning rum poured over the top. Oh, rum. Okay, rum and sweet <laughs> potatoes is good. That's good. And uh, and and you're were you the only child? Uh, no, I have a brother, uh, two years younger. And does he share your love of food? He shares my love of food. He's not as taken his cooking to the lunatic extreme that I have, but <laughs> but few have. <laughs> and what does your mother? What does your mother say? You never told me about your mother. <laughs> well. You know, with your Sports Illustrated uh, cover out, it's kind of appropriate because my mother was a swimsuit model. Ah, how great. But when mom was active, they swim, Sports Illustrated didn't do that thing. They started in 64. If they'd done it in 54, mom would have been in the issue, okay? She was. She would have been in the issue. She was well, that's probably exclusive. that's probably when I, when I should have been in the issue. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Not in 54. Well, I looked good in a bathing suit in 54, but but I looked really good in the bathing suit in around the 60s. Like yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that was my that was my prime for bathing suits. <laughs> well, I've never had but. a prime for bathing suits. So. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so mom was a skinny uh, swimsuit model, but uh, grew up on a farm in Minnesota, and so she thought food was very important. But I've taken the cooking to a. a level quite beyond mom's. Right. But this all happened after, really, you went to college at 14. Yeah. 14. And where was that? Where'd you go? Uh, well, initially I went to Santa Monica College in Santa Monica, California. And then? Uh, then I transferred to UCLA. I got a degree there in math, a bachelor's degree in math, and a master's degree in geophysics and space physics. And then I went to Princeton, and I got a master's degree in economics, and then I got a PhD in physics from Princeton, and I was 23 by then. And then did you go straight to Microsoft? Uh, no, I was a postdoctoral researcher 
that normally in physics, after you get a PhD, you go and you're, you work as a postdoc for a couple of years, and then you try to get a faculty position. And I was a postdoc with Stephen Hawking. Wow. The thing about working for Stephen Hawking is after you've done that, it makes it very hard to feel sorry for yourself. Because d despite his incredible physical challenges because he had ALS, he had a fantastic attitude and a great sense of humor. And, you know, whenever I start feeling down about something, I think, well, hey, what do I have to complain about compared to him? Right. Well, that is that is a good lesson. And it is a good perspective to have because he did so much. And Charles, too, my, you know, Charles Simone, he has the seat at, uh, is it at Oxford? Yes, he's, Charles endowed a, uh, a chair at Oxford for uh, yeah. uh, the public understanding of science. Right. And he taught me a lot about Stephen Hawking. But wow, it's amazing. So then after that, is that when you went to Microsoft? Then I wound up starting a company um, in 1984. Uh, two years later, I sold the company to Microsoft and I went along with it. And I became Microsoft's first chief technology officer. And worked on which projects? Because, you know, we all use everything that Microsoft's developed. And uh, what were your projects? Um, well, I was uh, one of the development managers on Windows 2.0. And then I, you know, saw Windows and all the way through. But I also was at one point or another Microsoft Word and Excel and programs like that all reported to me. Uh, I also started the research group at Microsoft. and. We built one of the best research groups in computer science in the world. Aren't you proud of the company that you really helped build? I am. It's still an amazing company. It has not gone down a rabbit hole. It has been producing and, and creating uh, ever since. And you left in what year? Uh, I left in 99. So, so I've so been gone were, were, for a long time. But Oh, uh, I know. Uh, I know. But still. Maybe that's what it, it took just, for them to be successful is to clear out the deadwood. and. <laughs> Get me out of there. They could have started the Microsoft restaurants or something <laughs> like that. But uh, but I, I think what you've done and what they've done is just utterly phenomenal. And when you left, uh, did you know your focus was going to be food? Or what were you? What did you do when you left? Well, you know, I'd I'd built a house uh, which had a big kitchen. The house in I it. saw. Yes, the house you saw. Oh, and that had a big kitchen in it, which was so I wanted to spend more time on cooking. I'd always been interested in cooking. While I worked at Microsoft, I actually got Bill to give me a leave of absence to go to chef school in France. Um, and <laughs> I, I'm the one person he, that has ever made that request and then had it granted. <laughs> Did you ever cook for Bill? Oh, yes. I've cooked for Bill many times. And now he spends uh, his time, Nathan spends his time in this laboratory. I only saw the first laboratory, but the second laboratory must be uh, just extraordinary. I have to come visit. You I do. Really do. Yes, I do. Well, this new book, Food and Drink, Modernist Cuisine Photography, is utterly stunning, Nathan. Uh, and where did the idea for this come up? Well, you know, I since my first book, which came out in 2010, the first big cookbook that had unusual photos of food, I have continued to take pictures, both for subsequent books like Modernist Pizza or Modernist Bread, and also just pictures for their own sake. I have actually have a couple of galleries where I sell my pictures of food. And another thing that uh, Nathan has uh, excelled at is to is photographing like yeast rising, yeah. uh, dough rising uh, with, with all the air bubbles in it. And uh, 
and uh, other other substances that you never even imagine that they're food. Oh, I, you people out there, listeners, please take a look at food and drink. Modernist Cuisine Photography by Nathan Mervold. And what is the Modernist Cuisine brand all about? Well, you know, when, after building that house with that kitchen, I sort of wanted to get back into cooking. I had more time since I'd retired from Microsoft. And I sort of naively thought, well, I know that there's a bunch of new cooking techniques that people had been developing. Chefs like Ferran Adria or Heston Blumenthal or Wiley Dufresne in, uh, in New York or um, Grant Ackett's at Alinea. So I knew that that was going on, and I naively thought, well, I'll just get buy some big book on it, and I'll learn about it. And there was no big book on it at the time. And uh, I also, in reading everything I could about it, I realized that the normal intuition that people had about traditional cooking and traditional cooking techniques wouldn't always work. So I started doing lots of scientific experiments, and I did a bunch of computer simulations, and... I eventually decided, hey, since that big book doesn't exist, I should write it. And that's what led to the first modernist cuisine. And since then, we've continued the same spirit of exploration in other topics. We did modernist cuisine at home. That was a home version of the book. Uh, then our next big book was modernist bread, where bread is one of these amazing foods of mankind. It's thousands and thousands of years old, but it's very complex because you need to have the yeast work just right and everything else work uh, correctly. There's a lot of stories and legends that are passed down about why you do something in cooking. And some of those are brilliant observations that are totally correct. And some of them aren't. But if you're just doing the same recipe over and over again, it kind of doesn't matter whether they're true or not. Because those are just stories that you tell while you're following the recipe. And... You don't need to know how a recipe works to follow it. You just follow it fairly faithfully, and you're going to get a good result if it's a decent recipe. But I was interested in why. I was curious, why does something work this way? How does it work? Uh, And so that's what the Modernist Cuisine brand is about. It's about uh, books where we go into enormous detail to understand everything we possibly can, bring lots of curiosity and lots of scientific knowledge, maybe lots of unique equipment and things, to create a book that is both a cookbook, but it's also explaining how things work. And that is so valuable to the home cook. It's so valuable to the chef, the professional chef, and to anybody interested in food. I, I, just, I just love looking and learning at, from your books because you learn a lot. Now, I have forgotten. I have something I wanted to ask you. Have you done Patashu? Well... Our next book is Modernist Pastry. <laughs> okay, so we're doing patashu for for Modernist Pastry. It's it's one of the one of the key dough types, and as as you know, very different than other kinds of doughs and batters, because you cook it partially first. Right. I've looked at so many patashu recipes. So I have a young man who was working in my kitchen. If you go back into many other books, the the proportions are pretty much the same. So this guy. Moises, his name is. He's uh, just a beginner cook, chef, and he misread the recipe, and he added fourteen eggs. 
Okay, so he's making an omelet. <laughs> no. <laughs> or a souffle. No, Nathan. Or... No. And my eggs are my eggs were small. They were yeah. all the little pullet eggs in my in my bowl from my chickens. Yeah. And they were the best puffs I have ever really? eaten. So tell your chefs. Okay, we will to try that. Tr- try the pacha shoe with more than four eggs. Okay. Now, you might have already found that out already. But but I'm telling you, they are a thin, thin shell of dough and a absolutely empty center. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. But again, this is the way great recipes happen. Yeah. This experimentation and error, uh, a mistake, uh, you know, uh, some a misreading. I mean, it was just phenomenal what happened. And I thought about you. I thought about you right away. Okay, I thought, awesome. Nathan has to know about this. Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags, and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. So who do you make your books for? Is it, is it a special audience? Have you found, you've done research on your audience, I'm sure. Well, I like to say that we write for people that are passionate and curious about food. If you're not passionate about food, you're not going to pick up much less 
buy and read uh, these books that are 2,500 pages long. Um, and, of course, you don't have to read them from one end of the book to the other end of the book. You can dip into them. Uh, some of the people who do who buy the book buy it because they think the book is a beautiful object into itself. It, we try to have good quality paper and high quality printing and great photos and so forth. Uh, other people are have it more for a how does this work um, notion. So they're curious about how things work in cooking, and they know that our books will explain it in a way that they can understand and ask lots of crazy questions most people don't ask. Then there's, of course, serious home cooks, um, and there's professional cooks. And a key principle we have is we don't try to dumb stuff down. You know, there's a bunch of uh, books like Cooking for Dummies, and <laughs> those are fine books, but I can't write... Those are Peter, those are Peter Workman books. He was <laughs> smart. Do you, do you know how many millions oh, of those books he, he sold? He sold a lot of those books. <laughs> but here's the thing. I can't write that book better than he did. Okay? No. It, it's and please don't. And please don't. <laughs> well, the world doesn't need yet another one of those. The, the thing that, that I can do, hopefully, is do these books that have a bigger scope than most, because we do tons of research about history, about all other aspects of the food, and uh, higher production values and trying lots of cool stuff. So it's a very different take than most cookbooks, but that's why we exist. Well, they're extraordinary, and I keep saying that, but I, I really <laughs> mean it. You use technology in a way nobody's ever used before for food. There is a guy that lives in Seattle. Do you know Kenji Alt? Oh, know sure, him? I know Kenji. Yeah, does Kenji come and work with you ever? Uh, he's been to the lab, and we'd love to have him come to the lab more. I mean, last couple of years, yeah. no one was coming well, to the lab he, because he, of COVID. He's, but. A he's a very curious journalist who writes very serious articles for the New York Times and publishes them. And yep. He just um, published another recipe last week on how to cook salmon mm -hmm. with the skin on, uh, but he salts it and leaves it for up to three days in salt, a heavily salted fish, and then uh, just cooks it, doesn't rinse it. How do you cook salmon? Uh, well, as, as little as possible. <laughs> um, right. So I like salmon cooked to about 113 degrees. Now, in you know in the Southwest in the summer, that's outside temperature, just about, yeah. or hot tub temperature. Um, it, at that temperature, it doesn't really change color. It looks almost more like smoked salmon or, or even raw salmon, but it is fully cooked. What Kenji was trying to get uh, away from is the fact that you have juices come out of the salmon and beat up on the salmon on the outside, and then they usually solidify that white, into this That white, white stuff? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, if you cook it at 113 degrees, just so very briefly, uh, but so it's all the way through in 113 degrees, that doesn't happen. Now, it's not crispy at that stage, so that, that would be a soft uh, salmon. Otherwise, the key thing to do is to sear it like crazy under high heat and then let the, the heat just soak through the rest. Yeah, I um, agree with that. I like that one too. But he's an amazing researcher, and, and but he doesn't have a lab like yours. So, well, I don't think many I, people have a lab like yours. <laughs> and, and if they do, they're probably putting it to a higher purpose than fooling around <laughs> with the cooking. But you know, oh, no, they're do. not. No, they're not. So like, it, it, here's an example of something we discovered recently that I thought, it illustrates something. We're working on chocolate chip cookies. 
So we've gathered hundreds of chocolate chip cookie recipes. We analyzed them, analyzed the differences. But here was the thing that just started to bug me. Most recipes have baking soda in them. Baking soda needs to react with acid. What's the acid? Here's the other thing that was weird. Normally, when you make something with baking soda, you have to cook it right away because it's bubbling. And if you put it in the fridge overnight, you're not going to have any uh, rise to it. But right. it's quite often people do put the cookies in the fridge for hours or overnight. It turns out it's the brown sugar, which is weird. But brown sugar and molasses, for that matter, are acidic. It's so sweet, we don't normally think of it as acidic. But if you test it with a little pH test strip or a pH meter, it's acidic. And that's part of what the strong flavor of molasses is about. There's other flavors that are in there as well. So that was weird. I'd never... We tried lots of books. We tried asking everybody I knew. Nobody knew what the acid was that could possibly react. Uh, of course, if you use baking powder, baking powder comes with its own acid, and so that would explain it. But most cookie recipes are soda. Are you putting the chocolate chip cookie in your pastry book? Oh, yeah, absolutely we are. Oh, okay. Now, is it a thin, crispy cookie, or is it a big, fat, doughy cookie? That, that's, you know, like tomato or tomato. <laughs> it's, um, it, I think it's whatever it people grew up with is the one that they're going to gravitate towards. And so we have a, a whole section where we describe if you want to get different textures, here's what you do. You know, you also get this interesting um, philosophical question, what is a chocolate chip cookie? Uh, in Europe, <laughs> where they know that Americans eat chocolate chip cookies, but a lot of European bakers never seem to have actually had one. You'll see things, uh, like in Paris right now, it's very trendy to have chocolate chip cookies. Most of the bakeries in Paris are now really? making chocolate. Oh. Absolutely. It's the weirdest thing. And most of them, by American standards, are terrible. Oh. Um, m most of them are shortbread cookies that have chocolate chips in them. So <laughs> it has the texture of a shortbread, which is not a bad thing. Um, but... It's not what we would call a chocolate chip cookie. But mine has baking powder and baking soda in it and brown sugar and white sugar and chocolate chips. Yeah, so brown sugar, as we explained a minute ago, brown sugar is good for the flavor, but it also really does help it rise, oddly enough. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to see your book because pastry is my favorite thing. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just love making the best pie crust and I love making the the patachou and the, and the feuté, all those things. That's all I... That's what I really like to make. And brioche. Oh, are you going to do brioche? Is that, oh. or is that in your bread book? Well, we have it in the bread book, but we've actually learned some new things. We have an update to the brioche that'll be in the pastry oh, book. Oh, good. In large part because there's lots of other pastries that are brioche-based. Right. You, know, you start with a brioche, and then you're either going to accessorize it after baking, or you're going to use that as the basis for making something like a Danish pastry or, or something of that sort. Well, tell me when you're doing something really excited and I'll come to Seattle to see your lab because that that is pastry is my thing. I mean, I just love it so much. So is there is pastry, does that include cakes? Yeah, and that is, uh, it's a big task because it turns out Earth has a lot of cakes. Yeah. <laughs> There's a ton of them. We can't comprehensively cover all of them, of course. What's your favorite cake? So for the cake uh, base, the actual cake part of the cake, not the frosting and the decoration, um, uh, we've been doing a lot of stuff with chiffon cake. Uh, and I like chiffon cake better uh, 
I've decided than an ordinary sponge cake or a French genoise base. It, it's got a, I think it's got the ideal texture for something that you're then going to frost or fill or, or do that sort of thing to. Uh, we have all of them in the book, of course, but uh, that's probably my favorite. My favorite cake of all time was the Cipriani cake, the meringue cake. So that's basically a, a chiffon cake, but it, has, but it has egg yolks in it. And that's one little eight-inch cake that c- comes out to be like, you know, <laughs> like 10 inches high and it's all covered with meringue and the, and the creme pâtissière in the, in the middle with whipped cream. That, that's a very seriously good recipe. Okay, well, we will make sure we include it then. <laughs> so um, how many people are working with you nowadays in your lab? Well, on the cookbook, we've got about six people in the kitchen. Uh, then we have, you know, probably another six or seven people that work in editorial or marketing or other things. So that's our little publishing company. Um, uh, there's altogether, there's more than 100 people that come to work in the lab doing other more serious science work. Right. Well, you're, are you still doing your whole company with the patents? Uh, yes, we are still. Well, a lot of the, the whole startup world is focused on people starting companies. But there's been less attention, I felt, on the process of invention, of coming up with what a new idea is. So we made a company that was dedicated to invention, both coming up with our own inventions, uh, supporting external inventors who are really good at coming up with inventions, and investing in existing inventions. And so I've been running that for, God, long, you know, 20 years now. So what is what's what was last year's invention of the year? Well, for the very newest inventions, there's two ways you can count that. You can either say, what are the things that seem to be doing the best at the moment? And there we've got a bunch of inventions in a technology called metamaterials, it's an exotic part of solid state physics. It's about um, making new kinds of wireless communications devices. So we've got a couple companies that we've started that are doing well at that. Probably our most dramatic one is we invented a new type of nuclear power reactor to make carbon-free energy. And we have a company that we've spun out. Um, uh, Bill Gates is the chairman of that company. Uh, I'm the vice chairman. <laughs> um, and... Uh, we have a deal to build a power plant in uh, Wyoming. Using nuclear power? Yeah, it's a, a new type. So it'll be the first really new type of nuclear power reactor built in like 30 years. Wow. Big? Well, they're all big in some sense of the word big. Well, um, I meant I meant in size. You know, the, the nuclear reactors well, that you fly over all the time are, are really clunky looking giant cones that sit there. Yes, uh, the, those big cones that you're seeing are actually the cooling towers. Yes. That's not where the nuclear stuff happens. It happens no, in a no. much smaller building. But, but that's the, right. the image of them, quite rightly uh, so. Uh, ours are smaller than that. Um, the trouble is they're less efficient if you build them very small. So there are some people trying to work on very small nuclear reactors. But you get some efficiency issues if you build them very small. There's also an issue with... Um, finding a site to build them because it turns out the neighbors don't want it built in their backyard and they don't care if it's a small nuclear reactor or a big nuclear reactor because right. even a small reactor is big in terms of the energy output. So are, are they are they dangerous? Well, we think ours are by far the safest that anyone's ever designed. Um, it, 
you know, the world needs to find carbon-free sources of energy. And you have to measure both what's the objective danger that you have from the power plant with the longer-term danger from climate change. Uh, in the case of a coal or a natural gas power plant, they kill people every year. Way more people have ever been killed by nuclear. But also, what about the pollution? The pollution well, is Well, that's the trouble, is the pollution then from those fossil fuel plants that may seem like either they're not really safe, but they may seem like they're bounded. Ultimately, the pollution is going to cause way, way, way more harm. So I, I think if you take a very rational view of it, you have to say we need to have carbon-free sources of energy. Uh, solar and wind are some of those things, but they don't work either 7 by 24 or solar doesn't work at night. So you need to have what are called baseload power supplies to balance that, and nuclear is perfect for that, we think. You get the gist, listeners. Nathan is involved in a lot of interesting projects, not just food but many, many, many other far-reaching projects. Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX Anniversary Sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super-comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. 
Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. I have a few silly questions for you. Back to food. You've learned many things, and I would love to get your uh, opinion on fresh versus aged mozzarella, which is better. (laughs) So when I went to Italy for the pizza book, we went and ate mozzarella di bufala, you know, just coming right out of the vat. And it had a totally different texture than any mozzarella di bufala I'd had in the United States. I had it in Italy before, but... It really struck me, what is going on? And it turns out, whenever we get fresh mozzarella in the United States, if it's mozzarella di bufala, it's coming from Italy, it's not fresh, it's a week or two old. Mm -hmm. And so the super soft texture that you might be used to from a uh, caprese salad or something like that, the very fresh stuff doesn't have it. It squeaks when you you bite it. Uh So it's a totally different texture. So cheese. Yeah. And now that's not extremely aged cheese, like like a blue cheese or a Parmesan or something else that could be aged for for months or even years. But it's very striking to me how some of the reasons that people would say they love mozzarella di bufala, if you talk to people in the United States, are totally missing in Italy because it's a different cheese. Does it melt nicely on the pizza? Well, fresh mozzarella has a problem with melting on a pizza, which is it can be too watery. Too wet, right. So what all of the uh, the best uh, pizzolos in Naples do is they shred it, put it in a colander in the fridge, and let it sit overnight, you know, with a, in a bowl so that you can let it drain. And that drained mozzarella is way easier to use on a pizza without it getting soupy in the middle. That's a good idea. Why does the sauce keep the center of the pizza from rising? <laughs> that was another one of our curiosity questions. I was <laughs> looking at a pizza say, how come the rim is so tall compared to the center? And people say, oh, well, that's because you're leaving more dough at the rim. But in Naples, the traditional approach, the dough is dead flat. There's no extra dough at the rim. You just put it in the center. Then we thought, well, maybe it's the weight of the sauce and the dough and the cheese. So we took sand. We weighed out an equal weight of sand, spread that on our pizza. Pizza just puffed right up, threw the sand off. It doesn't care. Uh, and so the, the reason is that the sauce is wet. And because the sauce is wet, it doesn't matter if the oven is 500 degrees The wet sauce is going to boil when it gets hot. That means it can't be higher than 212 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's actually relatively cold. And it's that uh, cooling effect that keeps the pizza from puffing up. Because most of that puffing up in the rim is puffing up by steam. It's actually the same method as patacho. And and, in your high egg patacho, it's the same deal. Steam is what powers that. And if you've got a layer of tomato sauce on top, you don't get hot enough to have enough steam. That's what makes the center of the pizza low. 
What can the home cook do to optimize the home oven for pizza? So um, pizza ovens are almost always hotter than home ovens. There are a few kinds of pizza that work very well in home ovens, but they're of specific type, uh, Detroit-style pizza, which has a, a thick crust. Focaccia, which isn't really a kind of pizza, but you can put toppings on it, kind of like a pizza. Those things work super well in a home oven. If you really want to go beyond that, what you need to do is get something that will hold heat. So people use a pizza stone. Uh, I don't think the pizza stone is as good as a big block of metal. So mm. the simplest way to get a block of metal is a flat uh, cast iron skillet. They're cheap. You know, these black iron things are about a quarter of an inch thick. That's good enough? Oh. Yeah, that works great. So then you put that in there and you make your oven very hot by very hot, basically as hot as it'll go. Like 500. That's about the, that's about the limit for most home ovens. Most home ovens, 450, 450 500 yeah. is marked on the oven. And then depending on the oven, sometimes it's marked as 500 and it's really 550 and sometimes it's really 450. Right. So, so use a thermometer. Use a thermometer. Um, but if you let it heat up for 20, 30 minutes before you put the dough onto that hot surface, you'll get enough stored heat transfer that it'll make the bottom of your pizza better. It'll rise better, the edges. So that's a, a really a great technique. Works well outside too. You can put that same cast iron skillet on your barbecue. If you've got a covered barbecue, like a Weber or a green egg or one of those, if you put on one of those skillets, that gets nice and hot. You can put your pizza directly onto that. What is your favorite grill now that we're outside and cooking outside? What's your favorite? Well, for convenience, I like a gas grill. There's really no difference in cooking with charcoal briquettes or rough charcoal or gas. There's no, no product from, the whole point of charcoal is it takes out all of the smell and the unique things. So if someone says, oh, you need to have mesquite charcoal, mesquite charcoal is just charcoal. You don't need it. And what you do in a gas uh, grill instead is you typically have some metal plates. Those metal plates get hot. And it's the infrared radiation given off by those plates that is part of what grilling is about. But the other part, if, if you just go from a, like a broiler where the infrared heat is on the top, it doesn't taste the same as a grill. And that's because a grill also has flavor that comes from fat from the food dripping off and flaring up and burning. And you see that happen all the time. Uh, it's one of the reasons that people sometimes have trouble grilling vegetables. If you put a, a corn on the cob or you put cut up peppers or onions. Because there's no fat. There's no fat, exactly. Right. And if there's no fat, there's no drips. If there's no drips, you don't get that grilling flavor. So uh, we like putting on a, an oil marinade on them. And then that drips and that gives you all of those, uh, of those things. But if you have a really nice hot grill, however you're heating the plates on the grill, gas is most convenient. And you put a nice steak on there, the dripping is what gives you the characteristic grilling taste. What was the last thing that filled you with awe? Hmm. Some of these cooking things that we discover fill me with awe. I mean, the, the most recent thing wasn't the one I mentioned about uh, the sugar being the, acting as the partially the leavener, but the, things like that, when you discover some brand new thing and it just like 
shocks you. And we've discovered a bunch of them so far, but the cool thing is we're always finding more of them. Uh, and you go like, we'll, we'll try adding extra eggs. Um, and uh, I think it'll make an awesome patashu. Uh, but then really understanding that and doing experiments, so we can figure out why is it working that way. You know, I think it, it's awesome when you discover something new. Well, the thing that's cool to me is about discovering it for the first time. Uh, maybe not for the first time in humanity. Um, right, but for the first time for you. First time for me. That That is fun. After pastry, what's next? So if you ask a, a, a restaurant chef what the pastry chef does, it's all, almost any kind of dessert. But for this book, we take pastry to mean pastries, like something in a bakery. Uh, so not ice cream, for example. Not mousses. We'll have a few mousses for filling a cake. But uh, we had to cut down the size of the endeavor a little bit because baking, as it stands, is so broad that we couldn't do all of the things we'd like to do with gelato and sorbet and all these other wonderful, wonderful things. But basically, this book is about uh, desserts that involve flour and heat. You know, the, the next book after that will be about desserts where we do more broadly what you would uh, do in a dessert, which could include things that have no flour and no heat. <laughs> well, it's just incredible the things that you do and have done. And it's always a pleasure, Nathan, to talk to you. And you can find Nathan's latest book, Food and Drink, Modernist Cuisine Photography, wherever you like to get your books. It's a beautiful book, and you'll all want to get one. It's a great present. And also follow Modernist Cuisine Instagram at Mod uh, Cuisine. Nathan, thank you. It's been too long, and I and I hope to see you in the near future. And uh, I do want to come to your lab and see something about the pastry book, okay? Okay, excellent. All right, well, thank you so very much. And my best to your wife and sons. Okay, great. Thank you. Bye. Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.